dedicating this to those who are in, in trouble. We are not, we are not mere victims of circumstance. Our lives are not accidents. Uh, it's not just happenstance. Life is not a tale told by a fool. We have a merciful master who has meticulously planned and purposed our lives and our destinies. Psalms 37, 23 tells us that he has even gone to the lengths of ordering our steps. I am not just subject to the randomness of life. I'm here by God's purpose and design. You are not just subject to the randomness of life. You are here by God's purpose and by God's design. And that God who has purposed you and has designed you also loves you. The scripture calls you the apple of his eye. He cares about you. He's not distant and aloof, sitting high and looking low from heaven, uh, disconnected to what you're going through. God cares so much about us that the scripture says he counts our hair. No, in fact, that's wrong. He numbers the hairs on our head, not counted them, numbered them, which means that when one fell off in the sink today, it had an individual number, number 3,467. And he bottles, he bottles our tears. God loves us. And in contrast to that God who loves us and who orders our steps, we also have an enemy who hates us, who plans our demise and who will come in at various times and attack us stand against us and try to resist us. And it's important to know you have an enemy so you won't misappropriate trouble and blame God for things that God did not do. It never fails. You know, a tragedy happens. Something goes wrong. You know, the first thing idiots say, why would God? God didn't have nothing to do with it. There's an enemy. You know, it's like the parable that Jesus told when when uh, the master woke up and all of his servants woke up one morning, they saw that their fields of wheat had been planted and sown with tares. And they got all up in arms. Who did this? And the master calmly said, oh, an enemy has done this. You didn't plant anything wrong. You didn't do anything wrong. This is just the work of the enemy. It boggles my mind that Christians still get so surprised by the activity of our enemy. The moment you got saved, born again, gave your life to Jesus and started to align your will with his word and God's plan, the enemy put a target on you. We are in a fight. It's hard to talk to people in 2021 about a fight. We, 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 a lot of us don't know what a fight is, but we are in a real fight. Now, in the fight as a Christian, it helps me to know a couple of things. Number one, it helps me to know that in the fight, I have a defender. I have a shepherd. I have someone looking out for me. Number two, it helps me to know that Satan is not an equal opposite to God. It's, it's not like two prize fighters are in the ring and the decision is in question. The book of Job tells us that when Satan wants to attack somebody that belongs to God, he still has to go before God and get permission. 
I like that. He has to go to God and ask if he can attack and find out the parameters of how much he can touch and how much he can attack. That's good for me to know because it lets me know when God allows the enemy to attack, it's because by the end of it, he's going to make the attack work for my good. I want to say that again. When God allows the enemy to attack you, by the end of the attack, he's going to make the attack work for your good. It may be painful but it's going to work for your good. It may be frustrating, but it's eventually it's going to work for your good. Some of the turmoil of going through seasons of trouble is while you're going through it, you wonder how it's going to end. You know, you wonder how the problem or how the crisis is going to end up. That, that's a lot of the anxiety and the difficulty that we face. It's not so much that, we, that we're overwhelmed and we can't handle what we're going through. We just want to know when's it going to end and how is it going to end. I can't tell you exactly when it's going to end, but I can tell you prophetically how it's going to end. What you're going through right now that looks so threatening, that looks so troubling, that looks like it's going to tear you apart. The way it's going to end is God is somehow going to make that thing work in your favor and make that thing work for your good. As cold as it sounds, pastor, how could all of this pain, how could all of this turmoil in my marriage or trouble in my finances or difficulty in my health, how can it work for my good? It's supernatural. But by the time you get to the end of it, God is going to take what's making you weep right now and he's going to make you leap over it for joy in the future. Because all things work together for the good of them who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. It might not be good, but it's going to work for good. It might not feel good, but it's going to work for good. It might be bad, but eventually it's going to work for good because I have a guarantee. I love God and I'm the called according to his purpose. So by the end of the thing, whatever it is, it's going to work for your good. Help me preach a little bit. Warm up your neighbor and say, it's going to turn out good. Come on, push somebody else. Say, it's going to turn out good. In Zechariah chapter 3, God gives the prophet an amazing open vision of the judgment seat in heaven. Essentially, it's a courtroom scene. And verse 1 gives us a list of everyone who was present at the trial. It tells us that God the Father was there. He's the judge. It tells us the angel, the pre-incarnate Christ was there. It tells us that Joshua, the high priest, was there, and he's there for himself, but because it mentions he was a high priest, he is also representing the people of God, and he is covered in filth. And then number four, Satan, the prosecutor, is there. They're all present, the Father, the Son, the people of God. And the devil. You can see it on the screen. You got the father. You got, you got the son, the pre-incarnate Christ. You, you got the defendant. And, and, and then you, you got the devil. Most people think if they could just get into the presence of God that they would be rid of the enemy. Not so. The devil comes to church too. He's here this morning. 
I promise you, somewhere in this room, Jesus is here and the devil's here. Check your row. Maybe sitting behind you. Maybe sitting next to you. Glory to God. You may be driving home with them after service, but somewhere the devil comes to church too. And so they are all there. You know, it, it, it's funny. Some people can't worship unless the atmosphere is just right or unless all the darkness has been pushed out of the room or uh, unless all of the spirits that people carry in with them has been cleared out of the way. And you can't praise until you feel that peace and tranquility and just the glory of the Lord. But you ain't a real worshiper because a real worshiper can worship God right in the presence of the enemy. A real worshiper can feel demonic resistance coming against them and still stand and lift their hands and say, Lord, I want to give you the praise. A real worshiper doesn't need everybody with them before they'll worship. A real worshiper doesn't need everybody agreement before they'll worship. A real worship can do it in a bad atmosphere with enemies all around, with great resistance. A real worshiper. And so... They're all standing there, and verse 1 says, Satan is looking at Joshua the priest to oppose him, to resist him, and to attack him. Satan is there to tear Joshua apart. Now, the Joshua that Zechariah is seeing, it's not you know the Joshua that was the successor of Moses. This is Joshua the high priest, the son of Josadak. He's one of, just, just so you'll know, he's one of the priests, the, one of the first priests that was appointed after Israel's return from Babylonian exile. And in the process of being exiled in Babylon, the temple of the Lord had crumbled. Um, all of the liturgical worship styles and programs had faded away from the people's mind. So when they return from their exile, God appoints this Joshua, the high priest, to help rebuild the temple and reestablish corporate worship because corporate worship matters. There's something spiritual about gathering with other believers, praying together, singing together, praising together, hearing the word together, and doing life together. Corporate worship matters. I know they say don't come on the news, but the Bible tells us that we're still supposed to gather together as a family of believers, and that when we get together, that's when Jesus comes and stands in our midst. Corporate worship matters. So Joshua the priest He's rebuilding the temple. He's reinstituting the protocols and the procedures for worship. He's building the people back up after a long season of exile and difficulty. And he's done a good job. But he does have some filth on his garments. Let me tell you something inconvenient about preachers. It's impossible to minister to messy people and not get a little mess on you. Y'all didn't like that. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. You, you, want a, you want a pure and holy preacher, never stepped in anything. It's okay. So, so he's, done, he's done a good job, you know. 
it's like not the easiest position to be pastoring in after 70 years of exile. It's not the easiest thing to do to get people who are not used to gathering to gather again, who are not taught and know how to worship to start worshiping again. He's done a good job, but in the process of doing a good job, he, he did get some dirt on him. Okay. He did get some dirt on him. And um, funny thing about it is the enemy and people, most people, have something in common. The enemy and most people will never focus on what you've done right. Y'all don't want to talk to me today. I said the enemy and people never want to focus on what you've done right. You can do 10,000 things right. Do one thing wrong and people will begin to brand you over the small wrong and they will totally ignore the mountain of right. Joshua's done so much good. But here the enemy is talking about the badge, you know, and since we notice that tendency in human nature, how about we stop doing it to our spouses? If you can't say amen, say ouch. You know, the spouse has done like 500 things right this week and did two things wrong, and all you can talk about, focus, magnify, complain about, get upset about, and start fights over is the two little wrong things. What about the 500 right things? You don't have to say amen. I know I'm preaching good. You, you, your kids, you know, they can do 500 things right, do a couple things wrong. You're screaming at them till the vein in your neck is literally about to explode and just kill you from a volcano of blood spurting out because you're screaming so loud. What is it about us? The sin nature we got from the devil. What is it about us that we focus on the wrong and we ignore? So Joshua was standing there after giving his life to rebuild God's house, after giving his life to train up God's people, after giving his life to minister and to serve and to pray with people, you know, after giving his life to feed the community and clothe the community and, and preach to people and go sit at two o'clock in the morning and hold their loved one's hands while they pass over to the other side. I remember when Katie and I first got married, we'd been married four days. My phone rang at 2 o'clock in the morning. She said, who in the hell is calling you at 2 o'clock in the morning? I said, I don't know. I better answer. So I answered, and it was one of y'all that had a grandma dying and wanted me to come sit there and hold her hand and sing and quote scriptures while she passed away. And I did it. And when I got back home, my wife said, is this how it's going to be? You might have told me before we got married that this. You walk with people. You're there for people. 
You, you, you marry them, you bury them, you feed them, you clothe them, you counsel them, you help them, you build them up, you beat the devil off of them. Joshua's done a good job. But all the enemy can talk about, standing there in your filthy garments, Look at there, it got some iniquity on you. And notice where the enemy attacks because he's a smart devil. He attacks where you're guilty. See, see, the devil is a liar, but when he steps into his office as the accuser, he usually telling the truth. Because he watches you, he studies you, he notices every misstep and every mistake. And, and this courtroom scene is unnerving. Because deep in our hearts, God has set eternity into the heart of man. And deep in our hearts, we know that one day we have a court date as well. We'll stand in that same judgment room too. God gives us a conscience as an inner warning system, and it pleads with us to do right because it reminds us that one day we are going to stand in that courtroom and the accuser knows everything that you've done wrong. Those of you that are turning down the volume on your conscience, you better be careful. God gave you that thing as a defense system against the wiles of the devil. God gave you that thing as a guardrail to keep you from going off of the cliffs of life and, and you keep searing it over with a hot iron. You keep resisting what your conscience is telling you and it's dangerous because you got a court date coming. And the accuser is there and he says, God in your word, in your law, devil knows the word better than you do incidentally, God in your word, in your law, you said it was an abomination for a priest to come before you in filthy garments. So look at Joshua. He has violated your commandments. He has disobeyed your word. He's got filth all over him representing iniquity in his life. I want to know what you're going to do about it. And in the text, it's amazing to me because... Verse 1, the only thing it says about Joshua is that he was standing before the angel of the Lord. He's just standing. And he shows us some interesting things. Number one, when the enemy launches his attack, Joshua does not fight back. Read all the spiritual warfare books you want to. Most of them are trash. Most of them aren't biblical. Because the truth of the matter is, you can't fight the devil. Cross your arms and get mad at me if you want to. I said, the truth of the matter is, you can't fight the devil. You know why? It's hard to fight a devil you've been fooling with. It's hard to play with the devil's toys Monday through Saturday and then come in and rebuke him on Sunday. The, the reality is whether you are plagued by sins of the flesh or sins of the spirit, both.
both are in the devil's toy chest. And when you mess with that stuff, the devil knows. You're too filthy to fight the devil. You're too weak to fight the devil. The truth is, everybody has a weakness. There is none good, none but the Father. Everybody has a weakness. And if the enemy really does decide to fight you, he will fight you in the area of your weakness, rendering you incapable of fighting back. You can't fight the devil. So Joshua doesn't fight. Verse 1 says, he just stayed standing. Okay. You remember what Ephesians says? It says something strange in chapter 6. It says, stand, therefore. It says, stand, therefore. And it talks about the armor of God. With your loins girt about with truth. It says, take on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, the girdle of, of truth, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But then he doesn't talk about attacking. He doesn't talk about going forward. He says, take all this so you'll be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You know what the attack has been about in your life? The enemy wants you to move so he can take the ground you're standing on. He wants you to move so he can take the position that you're standing on. That's why Paul said, do not give place, position, or ground to the devil. The attack has come to try to get you to move out of the marriage God gave you. The attack has come to try to get you to move out of the house God put you in. The attack has come to try to get you out of the church that God planted you in. The attack has come to try to get you out of the city or out of the region that God planted you in. It's all about taking the place that you're standing. So Paul said, put on the armor of God. Not that you, you go out and attack. Put on the armor of God so you can stand. So when the devil comes and starts attacking, accusing, and resisting Joshua, thing, the only thing the text said that he did was he just stayed standing. He's guilty, but he's standing. He's being attacked, but he's standing. He's up under siege, but he is standing. Because his training as a priest taught him one thing about spiritual warfare. When the devil decides to attack a child of God, the child of God has to know this battle is not yours. It belongs to God. God doesn't need you to fight his battles for him. God told you to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The high posture of spiritual warfare is simply standing. So I came first to tell you no matter what you're going through, keep standing. Don't bow your knee to the enemy. Don't bow your knee to the culture. Don't bow your knee to people. Don't let anybody make you turn tail and run. Don't run away from anything that God gave you. No matter how they threaten, no matter how they attack, no matter how they wage war against you, no matter what they say at the job, no matter what the doctor says, do not step out of any place that God has given you. If you will stay standing, God will start fighting. So Joshua keeps silence. And 
we, we got to learn, we live in a clapback culture. Where if somebody says anything offensive to you, you think you've lost if you don't clap back, respond back, say something back. We live in a culture that loves to fight by running our mouths. We live in a culture that when you get threatened, you feel like you got to talk about it to everybody except God. You call your mama, you call your best friend, you call your cousin, you put it on Facebook, you tell everybody in your circle what you are going through, but not Joshua. When Joshua is attacked and threatened, he shuts up. One of the most powerful things you can do when you are up under attack is shut the hole in your mouth. Ah, hallelujah, I feel, I feel right preachy up in here. One of the greatest things you can do when the enemy is waging war against you is close your mouth. Because if you keep talking, God will shut up. But if you will shut up, God will start speaking for you. Oh, I feel the glory. Somebody give them a praise right there. Somebody give them a clap right there. Somebody give them a shout right there. That's a word for somebody. You ain't got to respond to everything. You ain't got to worry about everything. You ain't got to call and get everybody's advice. If you will shut up, God will start talking. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Verse 2. And the Lord said. Oh, I love it. Because Joshua had the faith to keep his mouth shut. The text says that God respond to the accusation and the warfare of the enemy. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Now, now, I'd love to preach all this, but, but, but I just got to quickly take you through one little thing that's interesting just to drive home the point. Theologians believe this is the second time God said these words to Satan. The first time being when Satan tried to exalt himself above God. In other words, the first time Satan was thrown out of heaven. Theologians agree that these were the words God said first to the devil that cast him out. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What words precipitated Satan's fall? God said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Okay. So, so this is the second time God is saying what he said the first time when he kicked the devil out. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. To add credence to this thought, Jude chapter 1, verse 9, upstairs, take me there. This is interesting. Jude chapter 1, verse 9. He just gives us a tidbit of this story. I wish they would have expounded on it. But he says, Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, what, what that means is when Moses died, 
the devil came for his remains and wanted to take Moses' remains. And God sent Michael, the archangel, there to defend Moses' remains, and they got in a fight. The devil and Michael, the archangel, got in a fight. But, but look at this. Michael dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. <laughs> oh, notice what Michael the archangel is teaching us. Michael had the power to fight Satan, but instead of engaging in a war of words or in battle, Michael reached back to the last thing he heard God say to the devil, and Michael put the words that God said to the devil in his own mouth. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Did Michael, as the leading, warring archangel in heaven, have the authority to fight the devil? Yes, but he did not. He rather put the word of the Lord in his mouth, thus letting the word God spoke in the past fight in the present and the future. He says, the Lord rebuke you. Same thing happened with Jesus in the wilderness. When Satan came to resist and to tempt and to fight Jesus in the wilderness, did Jesus fight the devil in the wilderness? No, he just reached back and pulled words that God had already said. And he allowed the words that God had already said to do the fighting with the devil. Jesus said, thus it is written, thus it is written, thus it is written, thus it is written. In other words, he gave his voice to the word that had already been established. You didn't hear me. I, 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 I wish I could just preach this, but I got to talk to you with it. He, he he took the words that God had already established and he just used his voice to give voice to those words. You understand what I'm saying? And, and he let what God had already said in the past do the fighting for him. Now, why, what you think about this, why is using the words of scripture that God has already established so effective against satanic attack? If you're taking notes, this is a whopper. The nature of a created being never ceases to exist. The nature of a created being never ceases to exist. For example, human beings in their nature, it's their nature to get Hungry and thirsty. Long as there's ever been human beings, we've been getting hungry and thirsty. Long as there will ever be human beings, they'll get hungry and thirsty. It is their nature. Psalms 103.20 tells us something interesting about the created nature of angels. You can put it on the screen. It says, bless the Lord, you his angels who excel in strength who do his word next, heeding the voice of his word. 
In other words, when an angel hears somebody put the words God has already said in their voice, it makes them heed. The word heed means to stop, to observe, and to obey. So why is using the words of Scripture so important when fighting the devil? It's because before the devil was a devil, he was an angel. And the nature of created beings never cease to exist. When the devil hears the voice of the word of the Lord in your mouth, no matter what attack is coming against you, no matter if it's a witch and a warlock together in satanic agreement against you, when he hears the sound of the voice of the word of the Lord in your mouth, he has to stop, he has to obey, he has has to back up he has to take notice of because it's his nature to respond that way to the word of the Lord so God said so God said the Lord rebuke you Satan now now Satan is not a creator he's an imitator he's just an imitator God has set up his kingdom through the vehicle of his nature. God is a triune, three-in-one being. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. So Satan has looked at that, and he has established a resistance to God's kingdom, by setting up an unholy trinity. The unholy trinity consists of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Satan and his hordes, when they surround you in an attack, can be very powerful, visceral. They can control cultural elements around you. They can, uh, some people give them control of their lives and they can use people against you. Uh, they, they can get into technology and use technology against you. Uh, demons are regional. They control certain regions and they bring oppression into that region centuries at a time. Uh, some, some demons get in families and uh, bring generational curses and the same problems happen in the lives of family member after family member after family member after family member because what you're dealing with is a demon. Uh, the, the, the Bible says the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the earth. It's not that the Antichrist is coming. It's that the spirit of the Antichrist is already here. Uh, the, the enemy likes to, likes to put spies and sleeper cells uh, called false prophets in churches where they will stand up in pulpits and even have a Bible and they'll begin to preach and prophesy. But what they're preaching and what they're prophesying isn't meant to help you. It's meant to hurt you and derail you and destroy your faith system. It is meant to bring confusion and meant to bring uh, disarray and meant to bring problems in your life and in your home. And when you put this unholy trinity together, it can be very difficult as a Christian to continue to move forward because you feel the intensity of the resistance. But it doesn't matter if the whole unholy trinity gets in complete agreement and comes against you with everything that hell has to sin if you will give voice to the word of the Lord in your mouth 
backing the devil up is this easy. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. God the Father said it. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. God the Son said it. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Michael the Archangel said it. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. And every time they said it, the battle had to end. So I came to take those words off the page and put them in my voice. Whatever system is attacking you, whatever demon is coming against your family, whatever devil is trying to destroy your future, whatever attack your health has been under, whatever attack your finances have been under, we've come to give voice to the word of the Lord and say over your lives and say over this region and say over over this church Satan the Lord rebuke you now you can raise your hands and say that with me if you want Satan the Lord rebuke you, you resistance he was rebuking the accusation that incidentally was true Joshua was filthy standing there. But God says to, the, to, to Satan, he says, he says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord who has chosen this one rebuke you. Is this not a brand I've plucked out of the fire? In, in other words, let me break that down. Satan, shut up. I know he's dirty, but I chose to bring him here. He didn't get here by himself. I, I looked down at the fire that he had got himself in, and right when he was about to burn up in his mess, I just reached down and, and plucked him out of the fire. You know, some people don't like the way we praise the Lord. But it's because you don't know how hot the fire was when God pulled me out. You don't know how bad I was burning up in my own mess, in my own sin, in my own affliction. You don't know where I was when he just reached down and just, and just. That, that's the thing. People would never believe your story. People have no idea just how many areas of your life were on fire. About to be destroyed. But God. Is this not a brand I have plucked out of the fire? And, and then we got to deal with that angel because the angel starts talking in a couple of verses. But what's interesting about it, the devil makes one last attempt after he's been rebuked. But God, what about your word? Look how little authority the devil actually has. He tries to use God's own word against him because there's nothing else he could use. What about your word? Your word commands that the priest cannot come before you with filth all over. But it's interesting because Satan, the accuser, the prosecuting attorney, and Jesus, the defense attorney, both make the same argument. Watch. 
The devil demands justice. The law has been broken. Sin has been committed. Iniquity is there. I demand justice. Jesus demands justice too. Now, most people don't know that. Most people think that Jesus defends us by asking the Father for mercy. Father, be merciful to him. Give him another chance. I know they messed up real bad, God, but you know, give him another. No. Jesus never appeals to God on the basis of mercy. He appeals to God on the basis of justice. Because Jesus goes to the Father and says, yes, he's filthy. Yes, he's got iniquity all over him. And when I shed my blood on Calvary's cross and offered up my life as a ransom, I paid in full the total payload of the penalty against him. And it would be unjust of you, Father, to punish the man when the punishment has already been paid by me. So I demand justice. And when he said that, the devil left. And then we got in theology, which would later come to light in the New Testament, is hidden in the shadows in this text. We have the first and the second work of grace appearing, okay? The first work of grace is when God looks down at a filthy person that's life is on fire, being burned up and destroyed, and he just... He plucks you out. That's the first work of grace called justification. The word justification means to be declared righteous. Doesn't mean you're righteous. Means God declared you righteous on the basis of faith. Okay. So still filthy. Still standing there just a mess. But you're out of the fire. And I'm just thankful for that. <laughs> when I said it, some... Stuff started crossing my mind about all the fires I've been in. And, and I know some of you have been in some fires that should have burned you up. But, but because of justification, God looked at your faith and reached down and just pulled you out of it. And, and, and then the second work, though, starts in verse 5, which the second work of grace is sanctification. Because after God justifies you and pulls you out of the fire, he is not content to leave you in the same condition that you were in when he found you. So he says, go get a new robe, a clean robe. Go get a, <laughs> go get a rich robe. That's what the text said. And put it on him. Okay? And, and put a clean turban on his head. In other words... Not only take the iniquity away, but also take the mindsets out of the head that led you there in the first place. This is where your mind is renewed by the washing and the cleansing of the word of the Lord. Because God can put some new clothes on you and clean you up real good. And if your mind never changes, you'll go dirty up the clean stuff God just gave you. So, so he said, let's, let's do something about the head, too. And this is that second work of grace where 
God, through his word, through good pastoring, through good churches, through training, God begins to lead you and teach you how to live, teach you how to think, teach you the healthy ways to spell relief, to, to teach you the difference of what you can touch and what you cannot touch, environments you can be in and environments which you need to stay away from. All of this happens in the second work of grace. And he, and he did all of this as the outgrowth of an experience of just rebuking the devil and ending the attack. No more glorifying that demonic system that's against you. No more calling people and saying, I'm just up under demonic attack. I'm just up under, I'm in a spirit. Stop praising the devil more than you praise your God. Your strategy is put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. What, what's the armor? The helmet Salvation. In other words, cover your mind above all, number one, with the fact that you're saved. That's a weapon. Because no matter what goes on in this life, you're saved. Okay? The breastplate covers vital organs of your faith. The breastplate of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Not mine, not my own. This is not by works, lest any man should boast. The breastplate of his righteousness, right? So I'm covered. I've covered my mind with the fact that I'm saved. I've covered my faith system's vital organs with I am the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. You got to say that every day. You ought to wake up every morning, no matter what condition your life is in, and say, I am the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. No, I ain't good, devil. You're right. I'm a mess. But in my messy state, I am still the righteousness of God because I have faith in Jesus Christ. God didn't save me because I was good. God saved me because Jesus is good and I believed in him. Breastplate of righteousness. Girdle, thing that pulls it all together of truth doctrine. That's why you need to be here Wednesday night. Get some doctrine in you because doctrine takes everything you've learned and pulls it all together and holds it together around core staples of truth. Having your feet shod with preparation of the gospel. Just know the gospel. Read the gospel. Read the gospel. Be able to uh, explain the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are not saved and going to heaven because you've lived a good life and tried to do more good deeds than you did bad deeds. You are saved because Jesus Christ suffered, bled, and died for your sins. And by believing in him, God the Father has granted you righteousness and access to approach him and eternal life. Know the gospel. Having your feet shod with preparation of the gospel of peace. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So even though it's your sword, it's Him doing the swinging. And then He says, above all, 
the shield of faith. You take those things, okay? And then you take this mysterious little nuclear bomb out of the Old Testament for spiritual warfare. And you say in faith and confidence as you give voice to the word of the Lord, Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Oh, that's a word. You ought to give God a praise. You know what I learned growing up in church? You know what I learned growing up in church? People get addicted to emotionalizing deliverance. Both the people conducting the deliverance and the people receiving it. Sometimes what we have called deliverance is just a big old need for attention from two separate parties. You wanting 50 pastors and 20 elders to come over to your house with a bottle of anointing oil and lay in the floor and intercede for three hours to drive the devil out of your house is just plain old unscriptural. You are the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And the angels in heaven still respond to the voice of the word of the Lord in your mouth. And the demons and devil himself does too. If you got something going in your house, take your Bible in there. Start reading it out loud. Get you a bottle of olive oil. Pray over it. Plead the blood of Jesus over it. And start anointing the walls. If you got any mess in your life that you need to get out, repent of it before you do all of this stuff. Sanctify yourself. Get right with God. Pray until it's not you praying and the Holy Ghost fills you. And then speak that holy language out loud into your house. And let the Holy Spirit of God himself invade the atmosphere tell me what demon can stand tell me what devil can stand who can stand we are not sick broken unlearned immature and ignorant weaklings so rise up and respond to that stuff like you've been taught something Respond to that stuff like you believe something. Respond to that stuff like you got some experience with God. And let God arise and his enemies. Oh, I was prophetic what I just did. I just felt the Holy Ghost get in my arms. I said, let God arise and his enemies. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. I said, let God arise and his enemies. Let God arise in your finances. Let God arise in your house. Let God arise with your children. Let God arise and his enemies be scattered. All right. I preach way too long. God, seal the word in their spirits 
and let them use it to beat the hell out of the devil. In Jesus' name we pray. One more time as we stand together. Satan, the Lord, rebuke you. Now shout in this place. <laughs>